In the 2017 year in summary, I pointed out the importance of IQ or cognitive ability in helping define subtypes of individuals with autism. Well, why IQ? For multiple reasons. In 2017, there was research to show that those with lower IQ tend to have a higher level of service needs and medical comorbidities. Existing genetic data also showed that some mutations important for autism are associated with cognitive disability. And finally, those with cognitive disability seem to show a different phenotype. For example, they're the ones that have the biggest improvement during a fever. But I would never say that there is one and only one thing that classifies people with autism into different groups. The words I used actually were, IQ was not the be-all, end-all in subtyping autism. A member of our SAB, Céline Saulnier, who is the most knowledgeable, if not one of the most knowledgeable people on adaptive behavior, pointed out that adaptive behavior is the will-do versus the can-do. And it's important for differentiating types of autism as well. More importantly, though, it's been shown repeatedly to help predict longer-term outcome. Can the person live independently? Can the person dress and feed themselves? Do they know how to take a bus? Adaptive behavior describes the typical performance of daily activities and represents the ability to translate cognitive potential into real-world skills. It encompasses everyday skills that are independently initiated, like effectively communicating with others, participating in community activities, and developing meaningful relationships. The most frequently used measure of adaptive behavior, which is used in the clinic and in the research, is the violent adaptive behavior scales, and it emphasizes three domains, communication, socialization, and daily living skills. Dr. Saulnier helped update the new version of the Vineland. It should be noted in that people without autism, adaptive behavior follows IQ pretty well. As IQ is lower, so is adaptive behavior. As IQ goes up, so does adaptive behavior. Now, in autism, the relationship really isn't so simple. In people with lower IQ, yes, adaptive behavior tends to also be low. But where it tends to break apart is that in people with high IQ, adaptive behavior falls below IQ. So there's, a, there's kind of a gap there. Studies in people with autism with normal to high IQs show that the adaptive behavior is especially behind in socialization skills. So given all this, why is adaptive behavior not a treatment target in those with normal to high IQs? The biggest deficit, again, is in socialization, and I'll get to why this is important later in the podcast. This gap also seems to be bigger as people with autism get older, too. But very few studies have looked at how adaptive behavior changes over time in the same person. This is a longitudinal study. Yes, it's the same sort of longitudinal study that is so valuable at understanding how people with autism change over time, the factors that influence change, and how symptoms can predict later outcome. This is somewhat surprising, this lack of studies. And another thing is that adaptive behavior, which is in some ways the real world context of some of the core features of autism, why it isn't a primary target of intervention studies. Well, at least drug intervention studies. I will say that behavioral intervention studies, at least some of them target adaptive behavior as a primary outcome, but really many more should be. In order to show the FDA that this is a viable outcome measure for drug studies, more naturalistic studies of what the normal course of adaptive behavior looks for people with autism need to be conducted. This way, the FDA can better evaluate the use of things like the Vineland as an outcome measure for adaptive behavior in autism. And that's what longitudinal studies do. So a couple of years ago, Peter Zatmari and his group in Canada looked at adaptive behavior over time following the same group of kids in preschool. Using different types of advanced statistical analyses, they grouped the different kids together according to their adaptive behavior scores and found three groups. 
The first group, which is about 30% of the sample, showed lower functioning and a worsening trajectory, which means their adaptive behavior was low and got even worse over time. The second, which was about half the sample, had you know, moderate functioning and a stable trajectory. And the last group was higher functioning and did show continued improvement over time, and that was about 20%. Higher language and cognitive abilities were associated with being in the group with higher functioning and improving adaptive behavior over time. And both cognitive functioning and adaptive behavior predicted outcome at six years of age. More reason to include both IQ and adaptive functioning in subtyping studies. Another study in adults by a different group showed a group of adults that improved their daily living skills from age 2 to 21. Those improvements were tied to IQ, language, and social impairment. Finally, a meta-analysis of longitudinal studies a few years ago showed that most studies showed some evidence of improved daily living skills in people with autism, but not so much with socialization. There was a lot of variability, meaning not everyone with autism shows the same level of adaptive behavior impairments, although it does seem that most people with autism do show deficits in this area. Recently, as in a few days ago, another longitudinal study showed different groups of kids with different patterns as similar as the Canadian study. There were some that were moderately impaired and showed a worsening over time, and there were some that stay kind of stable. What they didn't see is any kids who improved their adaptive behavior from three to eight years of age. Now, remember the Canadian study did see this group, but in this recent study, the IQs of the kids were lower than the other Canadian study, so that may explain some of the difference. It's true that adaptive abilities are not completely dependent on Q scores, and there's a discrepancy between them in people with high IQ. However, it is well established that cognitive impairment affect the ability to carry out functions of daily life above and beyond the symptoms of autism. In this recent analysis, there was little difference between adaptive behavior and cognitive ability in those with moderate to stable scores. On the other hand, the IQ scores of those whose adaptive behavior got worse over time was lower than the adaptive behavior score. This profile of relatively stronger adaptive behavior compared to IQ has also been observed in other samples of individuals with low IQ. However, when IQ is not in the range of intellectual disability, like in those with high-functioning autism, again, adaptive behavior is also found to be lower than IQ. So this may be that the pattern of IQ being linked to adaptive behavior in people with autism may be driven by social abilities. And by the way, I'm pretty much paraphrasing from the study discussion section here because I don't want to get anything wrong. And if you've read the study and it sounds familiar, that's why. Over the holidays, Spectrum News ran an editorial co-authored by someone with high IQ and autism who pointed out that IQ does not predict impairment. Adaptive behavior does. Adaptive behavior does seem to be an important predictor of outcome and probably should be a better focus for intervention. But given the links between IQ and adaptive behavior, and because there are differences in the gap of adaptive behavior and IQ based on cognitive impairment, then I think IQ may be a reasonable variable to at least start grouping people for different interventions. And adaptive behavior too, don't get me wrong. So what is missing? I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, socialization and social skills are so important. Well, really, longitudinal studies show how adaptive behavior in children predicts outcome in adulthood, and since the socialization domain of adaptive behavior seems to be particularly impaired and particularly specific to autism, probably understanding it more is helpful. 
So recently, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia conducted a study in adults with autism without cognitive disability, for example, like the person who wrote the Spectrum article, to figure out how the different parts of social behavior and how they work together. I'm not completely ignoring the irony of a children's hospital doing a study in adults, but autism behaviors are seen in childhood. You've heard of terms like social motivation, social anxiety, social cognition, and social skills. Are they related to each other? Probably yes, but are they also distinct? In other words, can someone have high social anxiety but also okay social skills? Can they have social motivation but also social anxiety? Well, absolutely. Will the differentiation of the different component help with interventions? Well, totally. In individuals with normal or high IQ in this study, social motivation did seem to be correlated with most of the other social features. Social motivation was related to social anxiety, to social cognition, to social skills. So the recommendation was to improve social functioning in adults with high to normal IQ, future interventions should increase and maintain social motivation, something that's not always seen in existing behavioral interventions. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.